0: Our text this morning comes from Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 11. Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 15, this is what the Word of God says to us. And he gave the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood and to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Father, this morning we ask that you would come and speak to us. We pray, Father, that you would enter into this space and this time by the power of your Holy Spirit and make your presence manifest. We know that you are everywhere. There is nowhere where you are not, but you are not manifest. You are not recognized in every place. So lift the veil, Lord. Let us see with eyes of the Spirit the spiritual things which are important for us to understand this morning. Correct us in our errors. Rebuke us in our sin, encourage us in our despair, and build us up in Jesus. It's in your name that we ask it. Amen. Um, A couple of weeks ago, we uh, sort of spoke about um, the verses in Ephesians 4 that described Christ's triumph, and you will remember that a triumph is not simply a victory, but it was actually the, the Latin word, the Roman name, for a victory parade for, uh, after a victory, a victory of special magnitude. And in, in, in Ephesians 4, the, the Apostle Paul describes the victory parade, where Jesus ascends on high and He's leading a train of captives. And we're not told specifically, but we know of all the forces that he conquered with his life and death and resurrection. And so the captives in that train would have been sin, death, Satan and his angels, things like that. And it says, and he gave gifts to men. Now, most of the verses that we studied together form a kind of a a parenthetical statement. That is, they they interrupt the flow of Paul's teaching for a minute to make a point. And the point is that, that Paul is interrupting has to do with Christ giving gifts, spiritual gifts. Now the interesting thing to me is that in every other place in the New Testament that Paul speaks about spiritual gifts, he then goes on to describe things like helps, or teaching, or prophecy, or healing, or wisdom, things like that. That is, he describes abilities which are supernaturally given to the individual Christian so that the church can function like it should. But Paul doesn't do that here. Instead, he describes offices, And in particular, he describes four offices in the church. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor-teachers, or as the ESV translates it, shepherds and teachers. That, That last one, shepherds and teachers, is one office with two functions. The function of the spiritual care and protection that belongs to a, a shepherding role, and the teaching and function, which is implied by the word teacher. And the reason that I say that these two words describe one office is actually helpfully set forth in the ESV in the way that it translates it, and it's not as helpful in other translations. Uh, the ESV actually translates the Greek very literally and straightforwardly here. It's the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the these shepherds and teachers whereas if shepherd and teacher were two different roles in the original greek paul would have written these shepherds and the teachers so these two words describe one office now these four offices at least two and i'm going to argue that three of them were only temporary they were god's provision to lay a foundation in the early church for the well-being both of those original Christians and for subsequent generations of Christians like us. And we begin with where Paul begins, rather, uh, with apostles. And this office of apostle was one that was created by Christ himself. Now, the word apostle means literally one who is sent. We actually get our English word post, as in post office, from this original Greek word. And of course, in the mail, you're sending things. Well, an apostle is one who is sent. And there are a few times in the New Testament where this word, apostolos, is used concerning ordinary Christian men and women who are given some sort of task or to, uh, to send some message that, that needs to be conveyed. So in a certain limited sense, all Christians have an apostolic role or function because Jesus has said to all of us that we are to go and make disciples of all the nations. But that's not what the text is referring to here. The apostles referred to here were men of unique authority and gifting, And there were certain things that had to be true of a man to be called an apostle. First of all, he must have been a witness of the resurrected Christ. We can't go into a great deal of detail on this point. Time doesn't permit it. But a key text for this argument is in 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 1, where Paul is defending his apostleship from uh, hucksters and shysters, who were trying to undermine him, and he says, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? And of course, he was not one of the original disciples. He was not following Jesus around uh, day to day as he went about the places that he went. But Paul saw him uh, in a vision and was caught up into heaven and had a face-to-face audience. With the resurrected Jesus and received his gospel directly from the resurrected Jesus and that qualified him then to be an apostle Paul says something similar in, in 1 Corinthians 15 when he recounts a list of all of those who had seen the resurrected Lord and then he says last of all as to one untimely born and that word refers to a miscarriage or even an abortion. As to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. Paul says, for I am the least of all of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. We find that in 1 Corinthians 15, verses eight and nine. So an apostle had to be one who had seen the resurrected Lord. Secondly, an apostle must have been called and commissioned to do his work by the risen Jesus himself in person in a physical appearance. An apostle was, uh, thirdly, and a man who was given a supernatural revelation of the truth. And so Paul says in Galatians 1, uh, verses 11 and 12, he, he writes, for I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel for I did not receive it from any man nor was I taught it but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So Paul is clearly saying the things I am teaching you I learned directly from an audience with a risen Christ. It is he who gave me the gospel that I preach. And if you know anything about reading between the lines and understand the things that were happening for instance in the book of acts and some of the things he alludes to in his letters you know that there were plenty of people who were trying to discount his apostleship and undermine him and paul said no i've got what i've got from the risen lord and if you're questioning that you're questioning the risen lord and that's not a good thing to do number four follows logically from number three An apostle is a man who has been given power to speak with authority and infallibility. You see, the apostles uh, are ambassadors of Christ, and they had a, a unique authority and position granted to them, and the early church recognized that authority. And later on when the church had to decide for instance the canon of scripture what books were in and what books were out in terms of the New Testament in particular they quickly agreed that the books that made it in either had to be written by an apostle himself or they had to be the teachings of an apostle conveyed by someone who worked closely with that apostle and we have two books really that 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 are in that status, in that category. One is Luke, and of course the book of Acts was also written by Luke. Luke was a very close associate of Paul the Apostle. And then the other one would be Mark, who was, according to tradition, uh, a nephew of Peter. And he also journeyed for a time with Paul. So you had to either be an apostle to write a scripture, uh, a book of the scriptures, or you had to be very closely associated with and basically Uh, faithfully retelling what the apostle wanted told in order to write a book of scripture. Last of all, number five, an apostle was a man whose authority and office were attested to by the power to work miracles and signs and wonders. And this is important because even in the early church, there were those who went about calling themselves apostles or even super apostles. Paul references them in 1 Corinthians 14 and, uh, and, and in 2 Corinthians as well. And uh, they were troubling the church with their teaching. And for their source of authority, they gave each other letters of commendation. And so they would come into these congregations saying, hi, I'm an apostle, I'm here to teach you and give you instruction, stuff you've never heard before that, that Paul didn't bother to tell you because, you know, he's not that bright and he's not that well-grounded and he's, he's not that good-looking and he's not that powerful and, and I have other things that you need. And, and they would say, well, what's the source of your authority? Well, here's a letter from another super apostle like me who says that I'm wonderful. Uh, This letter says, I'm a good man, and you should listen to what he says, because I say the same thing about him. And so they would just give each other letters of commendation, and everybody went, oh, okay. And it caused a lot of trouble in the early church. In 2 Corinthians 12, 12, Paul writes, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience. And then he tells what those signs are, with signs and wonders and mighty works. People were healed. The dead were raised. People were struck blind as an act of judgment. Uh, When Paul built a fire at one point, a serpent came out and latched onto his hand and was hanging there so it wasn't some little quick bite and everybody said, oh, he's a bad man. He's going to die. And then when he didn't die, they said, oh, he must be a god because he was supposed to die and he didn't die. Well, those were the signs of an apostle. Signs and wonders and mighty works. Now, this is important. It's important to understand all of these things because there are at least two groups today who are making claims regarding contemporary apostleship. One is, of course, the Roman Catholic Church. And the Roman Catholic Church teaches that Peter, the Apostle Peter, was the first pope in Rome, and that he had the ability to transfer his apostolic authority to successor popes or bishops of Rome, and all the way down to our, our current one, who is, I call him Frank the Hippie Pope. I mean, he's just a terrible pope. Um, I had at least some respect for the last one, but this guy's just a clown. And he supposedly has all the apostolic authority that the Apostle Peter had, at least under certain circumstances. And there is just no warrant for that in Scripture at all. And when you go to Roman Catholic apologists and say, there's no warrant for this in Scripture, they say, well, no problem. We wrote the Scripture because we're the church, and therefore we have the authority and the power to declare all sorts of other things as true that aren't found in the Scripture. And so abracadabra, here's purgatory. Wingardium leviosa, here's here's, uh, doctrines about Mary, and the assumption of Mary, and the perpetual virginity of Mary, and the immaculate conception of Mary, and all these other sorts of things. And hocus pocus, here's the re-sacrifice of Christ in the mass. And on and on it goes. Friends, the the papacy is the world's largest self-licking ice cream cone. The Pope occupies the chair of Peter, they say, and speaks infallibly when he speaks ex cathedra from that chair. And the skeptic says, well, how do we know that? And the Pope says, because all the other Popes have said so. And it's like, well, sorry, I need more than that if I'm going to commit my soul to your care. I, I I need something more than we all said so. The second place we see apostolic claims today is in Pentecostalism, where men and women with no training, under no authority, with no education, take it upon themselves to call themselves apostles. Very often they assume roles in churches in order to aggrandize themselves, enrich themselves, peddle all sorts of nonsense to their people and keep them stirred up and confused and to exploit people who are usually pretty poor to begin with. So I want to say to both of these groups, come, show me your signs and wonders and your mighty deeds if you're an apostle. Raise a dead man. Let me, let me, let me take one of your hankies down to the hospice house here in Youngstown, and let's see if it heals the terminally ill patient when I lay it on their forehead, as Paul's did in Ephesus. Uh, just, just uproot one of these small trees out here and, and cast it into the sea with a command. If you can do that, that'd be great. Or, or here's, a, here's a poisonous snake. Uh, let me let him bite you, and then you stand there and don't die. Don't swell up, don't get sick, don't die. And you want to say to these people who are making these claims you have nothing, you are hucksters. You are shysters. In the Old Testament, people making claims, like the claims that you are making, would have rocks thrown at them until they were dead. We don't do that in the contemporary church. Maybe we should. I don't know. But you should see what Jesus is going to do with these people later if they don't repent. Because false prophets and false teachers are among the least favorite things that the Lord Jesus encounters. "'The apostles, therefore, were a historically unique "'and unrepeatable group of men "'who God raised up to establish the infant infant church "'and author the scriptures of the New Testament, "'and we revere their memory, "'and we still submit to apostolic authority "'in the scripture, "'but we do not look for new apostles, "'for there are none and there never will be another.'" Next, Paul mentions prophets, prophets. And once again, the prophet was God's provision for a certain period of time. Now, I want you to think carefully with me about the the historical situation of the early church. Jesus died in approximately 33 AD or so. It might be six years earlier than that, somewhere in between there, though. And the, the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke did not appear until the late 50s or the early 60s A.D. John was the, the latest and the last, and it was probably written around 85 A.D. So there's this 20 or 30-year period where the church only had a few resources. They had an oral tradition about Jesus. They had stories that people who had been there and heard him teach, uh, remembered and conveyed to their friends, and those got reconveyed around the early church, particularly in the area around Jerusalem and Judea. And then they had the teachings of the apostles when the apostles were there, but the apostles could only be in one place at one time. They also had, and we find this kind of buried in some of the letters of the New Testament, they also had little hymns or brief creeds or sayings, that they circulated amongst each other, almost like little Proverbs. And and then they had the Old Testament scriptures. And that's all they had. And God said, this is not adequate. And so God raised up apostles and he raised up prophets. Prophets from among the congregations who could serve as an immediately available, authoritative voice to convey a specific message in a specific context, and it was only for those people in that time. And that's why the teachings of the prophets were not handed down uh, like the teachings of the apostles were. So what are some examples? Well, we we just turn to our scriptures, and for instance, we find in Acts chapter 11, we find a, a group of Christian prophets who come down from Jerusalem to the city of Antioch in Syria, and one of them is a man named Agabus. And Agabus arises in the middle of worship and he predicts a severe worldwide famine is going to come. And the people gather together and say, well, what should we do about this? And they determine that they need to start taking up a collection and an offering to make sure that the Christians who are in famine-hit areas, particularly in Jerusalem, are going to be cared for. They're going to be able to buy food. And so they immediately begin taking up collection. And Paul took up that same collection from all the churches out in the Mediterranean world, and that was one of the things he brought with him to Jerusalem when he came to Jerusalem late in his life. In Acts chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, we find prophets and teachers once again in Antioch who are praying and who are fasting, and the Lord speaks to them in the context of that worship service and says, set aside for me Barnabas and Saul, which was Paul, for the work that I have called them to. And so they did that, and they fasted, and they prayed some more, and they laid hands on them, and then they sent them out, and Paul had his first missionary journey as an apostle. In Acts chapter 15, we find Silas and a man named Judas, who was not the Judas who betrayed Jesus, exhorting the church in Antioch with many words, quote, because... They were prophets. So they were preaching, but they were preaching with a supernatural bent. As Paul was journeying to Jerusalem to the events which would eventually take his life ultimately. He stopped by Caesarea Philippi, and there Agabus the prophet comes down again from Jerusalem, and he takes Paul's belt from him, and Agabus bound his own hands and feet and said, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him to the Gentiles. And there was the very clear understanding that Paul would not survive this. And everybody immediately begins crying, and weeping and begging Paul not to go and Paul himself finds his emotions rising within him and he says stop it guys I gotta go stop trying to stop me stop trying to hinder me I I gotta go I gotta I'm ready to die for Jesus just like I was always ready to live for him and so they said well God's will be done then and they let him go What's interesting is that the person that Paul was staying with when he was there was a man named Philip the evangelist. And we meet Philip early on in the book of Acts. Philip is the one who suddenly found himself on the road to Gaza with this Ethiopian eunuch from the court of Queen Candace who was reading the book of Isaiah and was reading the suffering servant passages out of Isaiah 53. And he doesn't know what he's reading. And Philip hears this and he And he pops up and he says, do you know what's going on here? And the guy says, no, I don't. And Philip says, well, let me tell you. And he tells him about Jesus. And the Ethiopian eunuch is so amazed. And he receives Jesus. And he says, here's water. What what prevents me from being baptized? Nothing. So Philip baptizes him. And then the Holy Spirit catches him away. This, This Philip. okay. And we find out that Philip has four virgin daughters. And they were prophetesses. And so we find then, also in Luke chapter 2, a woman named Anna, who was called a prophetess. So this office was open to women in the early church in a way that the other ones weren't. Now, we are not given enough information in the New Testament about prophets to be very dogmatic about them. We can and should be dogmatic about apostles because apostles, that has a very much has an abiding significance, but not about prophets. All we can really say is that a prophet was a person to whom truth was imparted by the Holy Spirit and that he or she was granted to speak that truth in some sort of an ecstatic manner. And and we see that, that there was an ecstatic element to it there was a trance or something like that and the fact that one of the problems at the church in Corinth was that these ecstatic utterances were tending to, to cause confusion and disorder and, and when Paul said cut it out they, the people who were doing this said well you know w- we can't help it the Holy Spirit just comes upon us and, and we can't help it we, you know it would be wrong to try and limit that and Paul says no He says, the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets, so you can and you should put a cork in it until the appropriate time. In 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says, let two or three prophets speak, and then let the others weigh what is said. And and that weighing had to do with, okay, do we have a false prophet in our midst? And and in in the little letters of 1, 2, and 3 John, John talks about testing the spirits that come and possess these prophets. Test the spirits to make sure that they're okay. You know, question what's going on here. Compare it to the truth as it is in Jesus. Uh, but in, in, uh, in 1 Corinthians 14, he says, let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh in what is said. And then he explains how their worship gatherings ought to be decent and orderly, and not chaotic and individualistic so that the body of Christ might be edified and built up, and if an unbeliever comes in, he might see the immediate power of God at work and be astonished and perhaps even get converted. But if he comes in and he sees just a bunch of chaos, he's going to come in and he's going to think, these Christians are just crazy and I don't want to have anything to do with them. And then he says uh, further, the reason why we need to be doing all things decently And in order is not just because of the watching world, but also because of the nature of God. Because God is a God of, uh, not of confusion, but of peace. Now, I mentioned a, a few minutes ago that we must not be very dogmatic about the prophets because we just aren't given very much information about them. We know that they were important. And we know that because Paul lists them second after apostles in this list But theirs was not a continuing office, which is precisely why we have so little information. And Paul predicted in 1 Corinthians 13, the famous love chapter, that that it would be a temporary office. He said, as for prophecies, they will pass away. These things were God's gift to the church until the New Testament scriptures were written down. And then Paul says, when the perfect comes, the partial, like prophecy and tongues and such like that, will pass away. And that's exactly what happened. That's a a fact of history. You can read the writings of the early church fathers. And by the time you get to somebody like St. John Chrysostom in the 300s AD, um, when he's asked about what was going on in the Corinthian church with the tongues and all that, he very frankly says, we really don't know what much of that is about because nobody's spoken in tongues in a couple of centuries. And so that we, we, don't, we don't really have a, a good framework for understanding what was going on there the mention uh, of these things in the writings of the early church fathers becomes rare and then it ceases indeed i think that it's the fact that in the later letters of paul letters like first and second timothy and titus and philemon and perhaps hebrews if paul wrote hebrews they never mention prophecy they never mention prophets but they do command the original recipients of the letters to guard the good deposit of doctrine that has been handed down to them, and so this is indicative of the fact that things were beginning to settle, that the scriptures were being gathered and authority was beginning to shift in the early church. A shift was underway. And finally, for today, we have evangelists. Now, we use that term in the modern sense just to describe someone who goes about preaching or sharing the gospel, somebody like Billy Graham, for instance. We call them an evangelist, and that's not an inappropriate use of the word, but, that, that, but it seems from Scripture that an evangelist, in Paul's sense, was more than that. Uh, for instance, we, we have a few evangelists named for it. One of them, as I mentioned, was Philip and Philip had daughters who prophesied, and he was called in the Scriptures an evangelist. Philip the evangelist. Titus and Timothy were clearly evangelists. And so when you read the pastoral epistles of First and 2 Timothy and Titus, you find, you find little passages of Scripture in there like Paul reminding Timothy to, quote, do the work of an evangelist. I think John Mark who was, as I think I said before, Peter's nephew, was probably an evangelist. An evangelist was one who had a close working relationship with an apostle. And he carried the apostolic message further than the apostle could go. He carried the apostolic authority. He was kind of an authorized representative of the apostle. And so very often the apostles, say Paul, would plant a church in the chief city of a certain region, and then the evangelist would go out and expand that work in a wider area. And so, for instance, you find in Philippi, um, you, f- you find that Paul planted the church, but he wasn't able to stay there very long because the authorities rode him out of town on a rail and he had to go somewhere else. So he couldn't be there to sort of establish the infinite church. in in doctrine like they needed to be, like he did in Ephesus and Corinth and places like that. But what did he do? He sent Timothy to them. And Timothy labored among them for a long time, setting things right and putting things down in good order. If there was a problem and the apostle couldn't be there because he was like in jail or something like that, then he would send the evangelist to go as his representative and straighten things out. An evangelist was a man who had a unique spirit-given ability to unfold the facts of the gospel through preaching and teaching. But once again, when the churches were more settled and the scriptures were written down, mention of them fades in the early church fathers who are just a wonderful resource for learning about the early days of the church after the death of the apostles. Now, at last, we come to the role of Of shepherd teacher and time does not permit us to take these things up today Uh, we will do so next week if the Lord spares us but I want you to think about one thing Christ gave certain offices to the church as gifts to the people of God three of those were only for a time and then they have passed away they got the church off the ground so to speak The fourth is an enduring office, the shepherd teacher. The well being of the church, humanly speaking, rests on the shoulders of her pastors. Her pastors are called by God, if they are true pastors, they are called by God to a task. From the perspective of heaven, pastors and teachers are the most important group of men on the planet. Why is that? Why do I say that? Am I trying to aggrandize myself? God forbid. I, I didn't always view it this way. It's only after I assumed the, the, the heaviness of the role that I came to understand that it was even heavier than I understood but we're the most important group of men on the planet. We have been uniquely called to love the people of God, to warn the people of God, to instruct the people of God, and to protect and to nurture the people of God. And why is that so important? Well, it's so important because of the importance of you. You see, you're incredibly important as well. And why is that? It's because you, the people of God, are God's chosen instrument to accomplish His purposes in history. That's your job. Yeah, you you probably didn't realize that when you signed up for this gig, but that is your job. You are to bring about the purposes of God in history by being here and being who and what you're supposed to be in Jesus and by relating to each other as you're supposed to relate to each other in Jesus. You are what God is using to do what he's gonna do. And my job is to train you and to help you and to give you feedback so that you do it well and you do it right and you grow up and you're not easily taken in and you learn how to resist sin and you learn how to be like Jesus so that you can go out in the world and shine his light. You are God's chosen instrument to accomplish his purposes in history. In other words, when we gather together here in this sparsely peopled sanctuary on a Sunday morning, when everybody else is asleep or playing golf or eating donuts or whatever it is they're doing, pursuing the idolatry of baseball, When you are gathered here, there is so much more going on than meets the eye. Heaven and earth are touching. You are receiving instruction. You are receiving strength. You are receiving power. You are receiving correction in the places that you're running in vain. So there will be times where you should get an attitude check. Why? Because of what is at stake. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, for you are my rock and my redeemer.